0: Well, good morning, everyone. Let me add my word of welcome to you as you gather in homes today. I pray that you are encouraged. I pray that you can sense the peace of God, even in the midst of this difficult time. And I pray, as Colin urged us just a little bit earlier, to take the opportunity to contact and encourage each other later on. As Colin mentioned earlier, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Nara Baptist Church. And um, it's my privilege to be opening God's word with you today. In 2019, here in Australia, there were almost 114,000 marriages, including five and a half thousand same sex partnerships. But sadly, in that very same year, more than 49,000 couples divorced. Four out of every five couples now live together before marriage. And the average length of a marriage for a couple that ends in divorce is only 12.1 years. That's marriage between two people, of course. I say, of course, because in America, for a while now, people have been marrying their favourite person in the entire universe themselves. Soligamy, or being self-partnered, as it's called, allows you to have your day in the sun, to to walk down the aisle wearing a beautiful dress or wearing a great suit, but then never having to worry about anyone hogging the doona thereafter. Never before has the nature of gender, gender roles and marriage been so chaotic and confused. Never before, friends, has our world needed a a clear and compelling and powerfully subversive picture of true marriage between not one or two but three participants, a woman, a man, and the Lord Himself. Last week, with Keith, you might recall, we considered one of the key implications of our living hope in the resurrected Jesus. One of the the key ways we display our hope to a watching world: submission. And we saw just how radically countercultural that is to acknowledge that our needs and our desires aren't the most important thing in the world. That our plans and purposes aren't what's to direct the agenda of our lives. That we lay down our lives daily, even when it's hard, even when it's costly. And we looked at two submission case studies together, didn't we? Our submission to governing authorities, whether we like their decisions or not but also to our employers. And we saw together that that both of those relationships reveal God to a watching world, but also establish order for us as we live in God's creation. And today, as we consider a, a third submission case study, submission in marriage together, we're going to see the same. Yet our topic today is one that can evoke all sorts of feelings, can't it? To some, Peter's words here are are deeply offensive. A call to misogynistic and oppressive and outdated gender roles that shouldn't even be in the Bible at all. Perhaps you're feeling triggered already. Fancy Sarah calling Abraham her lord. For others, though, words such as these open painful wounds, of words misunderstood and sinfully misapplied to oppress and demean and diminish. Sadly, we know that women are much more likely to be the victims of intimate and domestic partner violence. That's very real. But it's my prayer, brothers and sisters, that by the end of our time together this morning or this evening if you're watching later on, as we come to understand the true meaning of these God-breathed words, that you'll come to see them as beautiful and empowering and life-giving for us as believers. Words that rejoice in the differences between men and women without dissolving our equality, that protects the most vulnerable without denying difference of function, and that affirms the sacrificial love of marriage that is patterned on the love of Christ himself. In order to understand Peter's words to us today, we need to begin by understanding the context. But first of all, I want to address another issue relating to context. There are some, and perhaps you fall into this camp yourself or know others who do. There are some who would dismiss Peter's words here as merely temporary commands, instructions for a bygone patriarchal era that we've now outgrown in our modern world. But let me say, there's no sense in this text here today that Peter's words are to address a particular localized situation. Now, in fact, the presence of identical instructions elsewhere in the scriptures written to different people, I think makes that argument unpersuasive anyway. These are words, my friends, for all believers, in all places, at all times. But we do need to understand a bit about the context of the first century of church to to appreciate the richness of this text. Because in the early church, Christianity grew more quickly amongst women than men. And as we're going to see, that's why Peter explains the the universal call to submit there in verse 1, with the example of a very common situation in that early church, where a married woman became a Christian, but her husband wasn't yet a believer. That's one of the reasons why Peter focuses in on women more in this passage. Maybe you notice that, as Kylie read just a moment or two ago, Paul, uh, Peter isn't being sexist in directing six verses to women and only one to men, nor is he suggesting that women were, were failing in their role. It was just simply the predominant situation in the early church. But also, and this is where context is key as well. In the Greco-Roman world, in the first century world, a wife would almost always, follow the religion of her husband. The entire household, in fact, was expected to go along with the religious beliefs of the husband. And so what we see here today is Peter both affirming biblical submission on the part of wives, but also he radically subverts the expectations of society in affirming that these women should continue to follow Christ and not the religious practices of their husbands. And friends, I want you to see. Don't, don't, don't underestimate just how subversive this is. This would have been hugely controversial in the first century. It had the, the very real potential to, to drive a wedge between these marriages. That's the cultural context that we need to be aware of as we study the passage today. That's the cultural context of Peter's call to submit. There in verse 1. Let me read God's words to us here again. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Whilst Peter's command here has a purpose, the conversion of not yet believing husbands, it isn't restricted in its scope to Only women who found themselves in that situation. No, he commands all wives to submit to their own husbands. Notice, not all men, but their own husbands. Friends, in order for us to understand truly what Peter's calling us to here, we need to see that key phrase there right at the start of verse 1. In the same way. In the same way. Peter's referencing there the the end of chapter 2 that we looked at with Keith last week, where we saw that our submission as believers is grounded in the submission of Christ himself. Our submission as believers is grounded in the submission of Christ Jesus himself. Friends, please see when we submit to others as believers in a multitude of relationships, whether that be to elected officials, employers, each other, we do so not adhering to a principle, but following in the footsteps of our Lord. That's what Peter wants us to see. And it's so easy for us to to miss that in our hyper-individualistic world, isn't it? where terms such as submission, as Cole mentioned earlier, can often have such negative connotations. But please see that for us as believers, when we submit to others, we are displaying to the world that we are a people who emulate Jesus, that we are a people who pattern our lives on his example. Peter's appeal to the example of Jesus here shows us a very important thing, that the different roles that men and women are called to doesn't in any way imply inequality. Just as there's submission in the Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equally one in the Godhead, we see in the Scriptures that Jesus submitted himself, didn't he, to the will of the Father. As Jesus said in John 5, 19, Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Equal in essence, different in role. Do you see that? Equal in essence, but different in role. So what is submission in the context of marriage? This is how I would define it. Submission is the general acceptance of a husband's God given leadership role in the home. Submission is the general acceptance of a husband's God given leadership role in the home. The underlying Greek word for submit means to to voluntarily yield to a recognized authority. And so a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church to selflessly and sacrificially lead his wife and family in Christian maturity. And a wife is to ordinarily submit herself to the servant leadership of her husband. It's it's an inner disposition, if you like, that affirms the leadership of her husband whilst always discussing and always questioning together. Wives, let me say, your submission to your husband isn't because he deserves it. It isn't because he buys you flowers or takes you out for a nice meal. You don't decide to submit to your husband on one particular day because he, he, he took the bins out or cooked you a nice meal. No, it's because Christ commands it. You don't submit because of your relationship with your husband, but because of your relationship with Christ. Paul makes this clear for us in Colossians chapter 3 verse 18. Also in Ephesians 5 actually. If you kept reading when Cole led us earlier in Ephesians 5, the next verse actually says the same thing. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Paul's comment there as is fitting in the Lord makes it clear that Wives don't submit to their husbands because men are smarter or more qualified, but because the Lord Jesus calls them to. It's because of Jesus we submit. Sometimes it can be easiest to define something by what it's not. And given the abhorrent, abusive ways that the concept of submission has been weaponized by sinful and insecure men i think it's helpful for us this morning to to unpack what submission isn't firstly submission is not the same as obedience submission isn't you do what i tell you to do no matter what friends never in the scriptures is a husband called to demand, subscri- to demand submission from his wife. Wives are are told to submit to their husbands, but a husband is never to demand. Submission, friends, is a wife's willing offering, not a husband's to demand. Secondly, submission is never to be blind, never to be absolute, always qualified. Take, for example, the cultural context that I described earlier in the first century. Whilst culturally wives were expected to follow the religion of their husbands in the Greco-Roman world, in that circumstance, the duty of a Christian woman to God prevails. And so if a not-yet-believing husband asked a wife to recant her faith, she must not. Her duty to God must prevail. This means that if your husband asks you to sin, you should refuse. If your husband asks you to watch pornography, you should say no. If your husband asks you to lie or do something that makes you uncomfortable, you should say no. And it certainly doesn't mean, my sister, that if you are emotionally or psychologically abused, that you should remain in danger in the home and accept this cruelty. No, there is no excuse. No excuse, no justification, no rationale ever for domestic or family or intimate partner violence. And let me say, if you find yourself in that situation or you'd like to chat further, please reach out to me or another trusted person and we would love to help you in that. And so, whilst all wives are to submit, As Peter continues, some have a distinct circumstance and goal, to win their husband for Christ. Did you notice the the little word play there as Kylie read earlier? The goal is that these husbands who do not yet believe the word might be won over without words. Peter affirms these Christian women that the Submission and purity and reverence of their lives can be a powerful force in their husbands coming to faith. Seeing the gospel play out in interactions around the home, in, in love and grace and forgiveness and repentance being demonstrated, the gospel lived out in the home day by day. Live in such a way, Peter is saying, Christian wife, live in such a way that your husband is delighted that you're a Christian. I've shared in the past, as has Brett, about the conversion and ministry of one of the great saints of the early church, Augustine. And I love how Augustine describes the the gentle ministry of his mother, Monica, in seeing her pagan husband come to faith in Christ. This is his beautiful description of his mother she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you speaking to him of you by her conduct by which you made her beautiful finally when her husband was at the end of his earthly span she gained him for you praise God Augustine's mother saw Peter's words here fulfilled. Her husband saved through the example, the purity, the reverence of a life determined to be lived out in costly submission to her husband. And so let me encourage you today, my dear sister. I know that many of you find yourself in this very situation. Keep going. Keep shining. Keep praying for the soul of your dear husband. May your example, because let's be honest, our family see the real us, may your example be the compelling evidence that your husband needs of the perfections of Christ. Now, just for the sake of clarity, lest there be any misunderstanding, the fact that a not-yet-believing husband might be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. Friends, that doesn't mean that a wife must remain silent. It doesn't mean that a wife needs to park her personality at the door. No, marriage is a partnership with give and take together. Peter is not saying here that a wife should never speak or that she should never share the gospel with words if the situation arises. But it's that Her life will be a wordless sermon. That you'll win your husband with a different kind of beauty. That's what Peter urges these women to pursue from verse 3. Spiritual beauty. Let's read verses 3 and 4 again. This is back in 1 Peter chapter 3. Your beauty, Peter says, should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Paul, the Apostle Paul, says something very similar in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10. The Greco-Roman world, just like our own, in fact, was obsessed with the external. Women then, just like now, faced enormous pressure to look beautiful. External adornment was a way that women showed off their wealth and their status. And so, let's be clear, there's there's nothing wrong with braiding your hair or wearing gold jewelry or nice clothes. Peter's not calling us here to be frumpy, but that inner beauty should be our focus. Inner beauty should be our focus. Perhaps a a modern application of this that applies to both women and to men is for us to consider how much time we spend each day on our outer selves, on making ourselves look beautiful, of going to the gym, compared to our inner selves. If you spend more time in the morning getting yourself ready for the day and making yourself look beautiful than you do in God's word. Perhaps there's an imbalance there. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Holding promise, please see this, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Peter urges us the same way here. Focus on dressing your inner person, he says. Don't worry about Botox or the kind of filters you're going to use. No, rather focus your energies on the unfading, on developing godly character, of showing love, of seeing justice play out in our world. Focus on those things, the inner, rather than what will ultimately fade or will at least loosen, sag or wrinkle. A beautiful spirit lasts a lifetime, and then into eternity. A beautiful body, only mere decades. Friends, I just want to say, isn't that a radically affirming and positive message to women? Many will say that passages such as this are oppressive to women, but I would say, no, no, the oppressive thing is our society's superficial focus on the external. No, this, this is a liberating and freeing and empowering passage for women, is it not? This is God's design for what it looks like to be a woman. Exhorting these women to godliness, Peter then assures them, in case they were worried, that it's the proven path of godly women of old. 1 Peter 3 verses 5 and 6. For this he says, is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Peter renews his call to pursue spiritual beauty and submit to their husbands with a most striking example. And I just, I just love the fact that Peter's example of a woman who is gentle and quiet in spirit is Sarah. Because Sarah had spunk. Sarah was no walkover. She wasn't weak. She was a strong, independent, but yet submissive woman. Sarah called Abraham her lord. Notice that it's a little L there. Or her master. This is how she spoke in Genesis 18.12. Sarah laughed to herself that she fought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? The term she uses there carries a, a sense of due deference or respect. But please see, that, that, did, that respect didn't stop Sarah speaking her mind when it was appropriate. We see her do that to Abraham and share her feelings about Hagar in Genesis 21. Please see that Sarah could still be forceful and direct and and respect her husband. Submission doesn't mean being a doormat. But notice there's something else that Peter says there. Submission shows that a woman's hope is in God. And see there the end of verse 6? Don't give in to fear. Quite literally, don't Fear the things that other people do, like, for example, submitting to their husbands. Friends, I want to delve into this a little bit here, because here I think we have a, a beautiful example of the unity of Scripture. Remember way back in Genesis 3, after the fall, where God declared the, the consequences on humanity? Remember what he said to the woman, that they would be, pain in childbearing, and two of our sisters have experienced that very reality this week, but also that your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That's Genesis 3.16. One of the consequences of the fall, friends, is the disordering of God's good plan for the relationship between husband and wife, including the idea of headship. God says that one of the consequences of the fall would be women wanting to usurp the God-given leadership role of man. We also see that one of the consequences of the fall was domineering leadership on the part of men, and we're going to come to that in a moment or two. But here, friends, I want you to see that Peter reminds these first-century believing women not to fear Not to fear God's good design, including submitting to their husbands. Isn't God's word just amazing? This is just another piece of evidence that God's plan for gender and marriage is is unchanging. It goes back to even before the fall. But let me reiterate, this isn't a one-way relationship, because Peter now goes on to lay out ever so clearly the expectations for husbands too. And let's read verse 7 again. And I'm going to read verse 7 from the ESV. It's going to come up on the screen for you. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Friends, notice again how Peter begins there in verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, pointing us back again, just as he did with, with women, to the sacrificial servant leadership of Christ. And it's a beautiful picture of tender leadership that he lays before us. I want to divide this verse into four parts as we study it. First of all, husbands live with their wives. The same term is used in Deuteronomy with reference to sexual intimacy. And so Peter assumes that sexual intimacy is a part of married life. He assumes that a married couple will live in the same house and share the same bed. God's view of marriage isn't two roommates living separate lives, albeit under the same roof. No, it's a covenantal union of sacrificial love and complete intimacy. Friends, please see, sexual intimacy isn't just the union that seals the covenant of marriage, but that strengthens and kindles a marriage in the years thereafter. A second thing to see, and this is highlighted in the ESV, but Sadly, it's implicit in the NIV. Husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. Guys, it's not biblical to plead ignorance. It's not, it's not It's not. biblical to say, I just don't understand my wife. Claiming that men are from Mars and women are from Venus just is not biblical at all. God expects us to know and understand our wives with intimate concern and care. Our wives deserve nothing less than us knowing her needs, her preferences, her desires such that we can love and care for and honour our beloved. Just like Christ who came not to be served but to serve. We're to set aside our own interests for the benefit of our wives. Husbands, We need to lead in such a way that our wives feel blessed that they get to submit to us. Spiritual leadership in the home is not a license to do what you want. No, it's a license to be empowered to lead with Christ-like sacrifice and love. Let me say that again. Leadership in the home is not a license to do whatever you want, to have your needs and your desires met. No, it's a calling, it's an an empowerment to lead as Christ did with sacrifice and love and preference for the other. And men, can I just say, for every one of us that defaults to domination in leadership, there seems to be another one of us that abdicates leadership. We come home, flop down on the lounge, and ignore everyone. Brothers, many of us need to step up in servant leadership, to love our families, to disciple our kids, to do the dishes, to do the washing, yes, even doing the washing, putting our screens and our video game systems down, to be attentive to our wives and our families. Can I say, this is a huge issue in the church. For every wife that is struggling under a domineering husband, there seems to be two who are, who are dealing with an absentee or adolescent husband. Many of us need to step up in servant leadership. Thirdly, our wives are likely physically the weaker vessel. This is simply a general statement that women are normally physically weaker than men. Peter's not speaking. He's not speaking about being inferior in intelligence or wisdom. There are exceptions, of course. Some of you could bench-press me quite comfortably. But generally speaking, men are larger and stronger physically than women. And it's imperative that this, physica- this physicality is never used to bully, to threaten, to attack or to demean a woman. No. No. Husbands are to honour their wives. Honour means to to prefer, to put the needs of our wives first. Husbands, we're to use our God-given position of authority in the the home to serve our wives, not look out for our own interests. A true Christian husband, my friends, honours his wife because whilst she might be physically weaker, She is a joint heir in the life-giving grace of the Lord Jesus. Both men and women are made in the image of God. We're dearly loved by him. We're equal partners and partakers in both the gospel and the glory that will be revealed when Christ returns. We're equal parts of the body and bride of Christ. And so how could we not, husbands, shower with love One who is so deeply loved by Christ. And Peter ends here with a beautiful picture. A beautiful image of married life together. One coming before the Lord in prayer as one. Friends, in 1 Peter we've been reminded that we are a chosen people. Chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That we're we're living stones being built into a house with God at the center. And we've also been reminded over these last two weeks that we're a people of submission. Laying down our lives for others, just as Christ did for us. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, laying down his life for her. That's a costly, generous, sacrificial love. Wives are to love and submit to their husbands just as the church does to Christ. That's a costly, generous, sacrificial love. May we all Lay down our lives for each other, laying aside our preferences in our homes, in our workplaces, in our societies that our world might see the example of Jesus lived out as we truly follow in the footsteps of our Savior, and as we present a fresh and a vibrant and a countercultural picture of life way God intended. For us to do that, my brothers and sisters, we're going to need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So will you join with me in our praying that God might empower us to his glory in this world. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, there is much in this passage to challenge us here in the 21st century world, here in 21st century now, We confess that far too easily when we come to passages such as this, we dismiss these, your words, in favor of our own preferences, our own desires. Lord, we thank you for the reminder this morning from Genesis chapter 3 that you foretold that that would happen, but that we have no need to fear. That you have called us to live this life, empowered by the Holy Spirit, under you as our head laying down our lives in submission to each other. Lord, this passage applies to each of us in many and different ways. To those who are not yet married and who are seeking a partner, it very much informs the the kind of characteristics, the kind of partner that we should be looking for. Lord, help us to be wise as we do that. Lord, for those of us who are married, challenges our our tendency to be self-serving and self-interested it challenges us to lay aside our fear to truly submit but equally calls us to to lead as Christ did in a sacrificial selfless generous way for the benefit of others lord for those of us who are in neither of those circumstances, but who perhaps have the opportunity to speak into and invest in other relationships in this world. Lord, it, it informs the way that we guide and lead and direct others. Help us, Lord, to point others to your good design for us, your good design for this world, that we might flourish and live as you intended. Lord, these words, so equally can stir up in some of us painful, abhorrent memories of sin committed, these words misused and misapplied, people claiming to be following Christ but yet not following in his footsteps. Lord, for each of those men and women and children who have so suffered, Lord, I pray, I pray that you might strengthen them, That by your grace you might heal them. That you might protect them. That you might help them to get out of circumstances if they need to. Lord, that we might be a community that loves each other. That walks the hard road. That has the tough conversations. And that points each other to Jesus. Lord, there is so much in this your word for each of us. We pray that. This might just be the beginning of our reflections on this topic. Lord, that you might spur us on to love and good deeds, to submission in the footsteps of our Saviour. And we pray all of this in his name, and that he might be glorified in this world. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we reflect on God's word now, I want to encourage you in a couple of different directions before we sing. I'm very aware, very aware, that passages such as these can be challenging and confronting for many of us. And so I would challenge you to continue studying topics such as these in God's Word. That our mind, our perspective, might not be shaped by the influences of this world, but by the living and active Word of God. But that equally, as I just prayed and mentioned earlier, that these words can bring to light past hurts, things that we've endured that have been sinful and abhorrent. If that's you this morning and you'd like someone to chat, feel free to give me a call. Give me a call this afternoon. I'll keep my phone with me. Give me a call during the week. Send an email and we can chat. But if you find yourself in a circumstance where you need wisdom and you need support, let me urge you to reach out to me or to another trusted brother or sister that we might encourage and support you as followers of Jesus. But as I prayed, for, for all of us, these words this morning are challenging and confronting. They call us to repent. They call us to be shaped into the likeness of Christ. And our final song this morning, I've chosen very intentionally for that end. Because we want to be men and women who are shaped by God's word. So we're going to sing that song, Your Word, now. Your word is good. It's ever faithful. Worth more than gold, the heart's delight. Your word gives life to all who hear and obey. Your word endures forever.